At Federal, we have products for every season and every pursuit. Our passionate and dedicated teams design, build, and deliver the world's best American-made ammunition, whether you're hunting, target shooting, or defending yourself and family. Our pride and hard work can be found in every box, ammo can, or bottle of ammunition. For us, it's always in season. It's federal season. All right, welcome to Federal Ammunition's podcast. It's federal season. I am guest hosting today, Giannis Patelis of Meat Eater. And today, the species or, or the topic of the podcast is elk, specifically rifle season, and what some of us would call late season elk, um, mostly because I think that a lot of us hunt early season elk with archery equipment. And then once the later seasons come along, October, November, we use uh, rifle calibers um, to talk to- tactics and topics. Um, about el- general elk hunting in the lake season, I have elk expert, in my opinion, elk expert, Jason Phelps on with me. And then later for the sort of tech, I forgot what they call it here on the federal, uh, podcast, the tech talk segment, we're going to have Mike Holm, who's the global product lane director for centerfire rifle at federal. All right. So it's not to bore you with my intro. Let's get right to it. Jason, well, I guess real quick, how are you? Doing real good, real good. Yeah, I'm right in between what you'd call those seasons between switching over from bow and uh, getting my rifle ready to go chase elk now. So, good. Excellent. Um, then you are, you're primed because you're thinking about this stuff. Now, would you, the way I described it, would you say that uh, I, I described that correctly as like early season and late season? For elk hunting, yeah, I think there's a pretty hard line drawn. You know, there's there's definitely it, it gets a little blurry in the middle, um, but kind of that rut is what people would refer to as that early season. And then as soon as they're done rutting and the bulls kind of tend to leave, we we start to consider that that late season elk hunt. And then mm-hmm. you know, around here, there's even you know there's even like that wintering section, which may be considered like really late. So, but yeah, that it's that line drawn on the rut. I would say defines early and late. And for most of us. Early, it's going to be with archery equipment, and late, it's going to be with rifle um, equipment. All right, but let's back up just a little bit. I want to know, tell me quickly your favorite three states to hunt elk in, and tell me why number one is in the number one spot. And then on the heels of that, tell me what's like your the, the, ha- the specific habitat that you like to hunt elk in. Okay. So number one, uh, and I always hate these lists because you get the residents of those states or people that want to hunt those states a little bit mad at you, but Wyoming's always at the top. Um, and my reason for Wyoming being at the top is they've got a great general season that you can put in for. You can usually draw within a couple of years, you know, two to three years. And the success rate is like absurdly high. I mean, we're talking like 35% plus success rate on some of these units, which rival a lot of states like what you consider controlled hunts or special draw hunts. So Wyoming's mm-hmm. just loaded up with elk. Very good. Um, you have to throw Colorado in the mix just because um, of sheer numbers and opportunity. You know, they give out pretty much the, you know, the majority of the state is still an over the counter opportunity. Um, they've got, you know, pretty liberal rifle seasons that are still pretty easy to get, you know, tags for, even if they're not over the counter type tags. Um, and then, you know, number three, these other states are so hard to get tags, um, but then you'd kind of have to throw Montana in there as, as your general elk because you can also get a tag there every three to four years. So those are my favorite because you probably get to hunt them the most. You know, the rest of those Western states, um, you got to have some sort of a plan put together um, to get tags. And sometimes it's taken, you know, 10, 12 plus years, you know, even longer to get tags in these other states. So those are the three that you can hunt, you know, regularly figure out. And then they've got pretty dang good elk hunting. Yeah, I'd have to agree too, especially with Colorado. It's like you can be, it can be literally two days before the season starts and you can say, hey, I'm going to drive however far, whether it's, you know, from Kansas into Colorado or whether it's from Maine to Colorado and be an elk hunter and just go and buy an over the cat tag. 
over-the-counter tag, which is a nice deal. Yep. But as we all know, I think it's causing um, some crowding issues in that state. And uh, I, I think, like you like you alluded to, most of the state is still over-the-counter, but a lot of the units are becoming um, sort of what they call like a guaranteed draw where you got to apply for it, but you're guaranteed to get it. It's capped, but they're, they rarely reach those caps. But what that does is at least it forces people to pick a unit that they're going to hunt in for the season that they choose. And I think what they're trying to get away from is that just by coincidence, a large number of people don't all decide, well, I've got an over-the-counter tag and I'm just going to randomly end up in unit 744. And everybody goes to 744 and everybody that's there that year has the worst experience ever, right? Where if you had yep. chosen 744 or the neighboring unit maybe, then it would split everybody up. Um, are you are you getting that same vibe out of Colorado? Yeah, yeah. They set their quotas on specific units. I believe they thought would have you know uh, overpressure or could have the potential for everybody ended up in one spot. And I think they're probably just monitoring how many people end up where, and then they're just managing it to that. And then at some point, if it needs to push to a controlled, a true controlled hunt, they could do that. But um, you know, one thing just to to back up a little bit on overcrowding. Um, it is, there are a lot of people there. It's the first state you kind of hit if you're coming from the East, but in my experience, I've been there and felt that like, man, there's so many people around there. It's still been a pretty decent hunt. There's still elk around, you know, you, depending on where you're at, you let your feet do the walk-in or you let your glass do the walk-in and there's still, there's still decent amount of numbers, even for the pressure. So there's, there's still an opportunity for a great experience there, but there, the pressure uh, may get to some people. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anybody let that, you know, what we're saying now to deter them from a Colorado elk adventure. Um, yep. Might take you a couple of years to figure it out. Maybe you get lucky, figure it out in the first year, but there is certainly, um, the opportunity is there, there. I think they still have more than twice the amount of elk than the next closest state. Um, I think they're well over 200,000 and I think Montana comes in second, right? With like under 100. Yep. Those might yep. be old I, I know. Yeah, I know the real old numbers, you know, we used to always say Colorado had 300, but I think that numbers came down a little bit, but yeah, I I know Colorado, I'm pretty confident saying that they're double the next the next state. All right, let's switch over to habitat. There's elk can be found li- I mean, literally now if you look at all the states that have elk, which I think is somewhere in the in the 20s now, you can find them in hardwood forests, you can find them in desert you can find them in like open plains, um, up high in the Rocky Mountains and the foothills of the Rockies. You can find them on the Western coast, which you're familiar with. What is your favorite type of habitat to chase elk in? So my favorite habitat, you know, I grew up, like you said, hunting the coastal jungle where a lot of our elk hunting with rifles was hundred yards and under you were spotting stock or, you know, still hunting. Um, but now my absolute favorite is at tree line, or slightly below tree line, but with either avalanche shoots or some sparse openings. And the reason I love to get that good mix is that I know I have everything I need there, especially during a rifle season. I can glass. I can let my glass do it. I know I've got good bedding there. Um, and so that's my ideal. I want I want my food to be very closely located to my bedding areas, very closely located to where they're comfortable um, you know, maybe, maybe it is an avalanche shoot or a small strip or a little strip meadow or, or whatever it may be, just a smaller opening where, where we've got, you know, change from, you know, dark timber to, to what I consider more of your typical feed or typical brush where they're a little more safe. I kind of want that mix, um, of, of being able to glass, being able to, to, you know, look above tree line, below tree line and, and kind of figure out where those elk want to be. Um, cause one thing, especially with, the, with the, you know, as the season gets later, assuming we're still talking about late season elk, um, you know, those things will move with the weather. They'll move with the food. Um, they'll move and a lot of times, you know, if we're talking specific bull hunting, those things want to get fairly secluded and get away from the rest of the elk at times. You know, they, they mm-hmm. go from bachelored up in the summer, they go from hanging out with the cows for a month and a half to two. And then it almost seems like these bigger bulls or these bulls will, you know, the bigger bulls don't really want to group back up. They'll kind of just feed solo. And then some of the smaller bulls will group back up and they kind of just go off on their own. They're kind of in that post rut replenishment. You know, they're just trying to get as much food as they can prior to the, to the winter. Um, so those areas at tree line, 
um, or right below a tree line, but with uh, good good food, um, you know, and some good security are kind of those things that I that I, I look for. And I imagine when when you're talking about tree line uh, type of habitat and elk hunting, that probably takes out a uh, a fair amount of the pressure and your competition from other hunters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing we didn't talk about. If you can get that tree line, you know, or the area, it's got that tree line, a little bit of subalpine above it. Um, if you can get that two miles off the road, um, two to three miles off the road, it's kind of that perfect. I don't need to go 10 miles. Um, but if you can find kind of that good mix and then separate yourself for some people, um, seems to be really good, but you know, you get some weather, um, you know, that pushes those elk down. You're going to have to change really quick. That's just my preferred area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that especially in the course of a rifle season where a lot of rifle seasons are going to open up sometime in October for elk hunting, uh, there's very much going to be elk, even herds of elk hanging out in that like tree line. And Colorado is probably going to be the highest elevation where you're going to be probably still finding elk at maybe even 12 plus thousand feet, right? Um, and then in the course of a rifle season, they could get pushed from there all the way down to nine, eight, even 7,000 feet. And, th- and there's a big change there in other States where you don't have, um, uh, quite the relief that Colorado has where the highest, you know, that you might ever find an elk is say 9,000 feet. That's super high. Right. And they, it's going to be lower. Um, I, th- what I'd like you to touch on is I, he- I, we used to hear this a lot is people would ask, well, are the elk still up high? Or they, or that would be like an excuse that people would use for why they didn't have any successes. Oh, the elk are still up high. I found in our years of, of guiding in Colorado that the elk were always kind of spread out pretty evenly across elevation. And it had more to do with where the pressure was or where the good feed was more so than just the elevation where it's not like, oh, it's October. They should all be at 9,000 feet. Now it's, November, they're all going to be at 7,000 feet. I think it more has to do with just like, oh, the weather's nice. There's feed up there. Nobody's bothering us. Sure. We'll all hang out at 12,000 feet. The weather comes, we're going to have to drop down lower. What's your experience been with that? Yeah. Those elk are going to be really comfortable as long as the feeds up there. You know, we've seen in some of these spots, you know, Idaho specifically on real dry years, like we've watched the elk drop a ton of elevation in the middle of September. Now, you know, the weather's great. There, there's no need for them to drop, but they have to drop with their food because everything up high got burnt up, you know, and mm-hmm. same thing goes as you go into winter, as long as there is enough food to, to sustain the, the amount of elk that want to stay up there. Um, I feel that they'll stay up there as absolutely as long as possible until, um, one weather pushes them down or two, uh, food forces them down. And then there's also a component, which is always kind of tough to put your finger on, um, there's a component of, I, I think elk just understand where easier food comes from. You know, if there's, if there's, you know, alfalfa fields or whatever ag may be down in the bottom or, you know, in Washington and in some places in Wyoming, I've hunted, there's feed stations down low and these elk aren't dumb. Like they're almost programmed to it. Like hey, if we go down, you know, there's bales of alfalfa for us to, to get through the winter, you know? And so depending mm-hmm. on where you're at, but I think food is number one, um, one, you know, like I say, the weather pushes them down their, their food gets burnt up. They don't have access to it. Um, well, typically, so on a year, like at least we're having here in Western Washington and in Washington right now, where we've still got summer type weather in the middle of October. Like I expect those bulls to, and cows even to stay as high as possible until the weather forces them down. Yeah. And would you agree too, that there's probably some elk that because their, you know, predecessors taught them like the the one version, which is oh, I'm living at tree line, and then I come down when the when the uh, snow comes. There's probably another version of elk that could be probably in the same county of where that elk lives. It's another version where its predecessors, its mother, showed it that hey, you can live down here on the ranch and the adjoining timber almost the whole year. Like there's food here all the time. At, at least for us, we, we we used to find I think elk from those complete lowest elevations all the way up to Alpine. Yep. No, that's the same thing. I think some are, uh, you know, just geared and programmed to stay as high as possible and come down. And then, like you said, there are elk, um, especially here in, in, in 
my area that they're they will be right in town on the highway all year long but then you can almost see you know quote unquote people call them you know mountain mountain bowls or you know the same thing with deer mountain bucks have come down i think you see some of that where these you know critters that have lived in the the mountains or up in the hills they've now migrated 10 miles down and they're kind of you know intermingling with the resident herds down low um, but yeah, there, there's, it, it's kind of funny and I don't know if we'll ever know why some decide to stay down and, and some decide to keep migrating back up. But, uh, yeah, you'll get, you'll get splits of, of, you know, elk ending up down low, um, during those late seasons and, and following the food when the other ones have stayed in that food year round. All right. We've talked about like what kind of habitat you like to hunt. Talking about what time of year we're roughly doing this. Um, you kind of mentioned how far you like to be away from a road. Like you're saying two to three miles is plenty without going into the calling yet. Cause I want to touch on that in a second, but give me like top three or just three sort of DIY elk hunting tips that you would have for the guy or gal out on public land, maybe early on in their elk hunting career. Give me a couple tips. that's going to help, help these folks along. Yeah, I, so number one is the most obvious. Um, don't invest a lot of time. Don't invest a lot of resources as far as like setting camp and being immobile until you find elk. Um, we just talked about, especially during a rifle season, you can find elk up at 12,000. You could find elk down at 7,000 or anywhere in between. Like one thing I like to do, especially if I've never been to an area and it's one of my favorite things to do is because it's a, it's a new challenge is we got to find the elk really quick because you might be on a, you know, a seven, nine day hunt max or shoot. Maybe it's just on the weekend and, you know, weather moves in and, and what you saw on one weekend is different from what you saw on the second weekend. So number one is always let's go find elk, um, and, and have a good plan put together. Um, use this as a rule of thumb. It's not always right. If the weather's good, let's go higher, um, higher in that, that elk's range where we expect them to be and, and then work our way down from there. Now, with that said, you know, it can be the middle of September and, you know, where we think the elk want to be at 12,000, they might be be comfortable down at 7,000. So um, find elk no matter where they're at before you invest a bunch of time, resources, effort, energy into, um, you know, going and hunting them. Uh, okay, well, let's, two, do, let's, let's do like a, let's do like a sub number one. Let's do like a sub A and B. How, how, how to how, tell, tell people like, what are you going to do to find them? When you, you're like kind of new to a zone, you're like, I had to find them. Jason said, I got to find them before I even set my camp. What are you going to do to find them? So one thing I might do is pull out, you know, Onyx or a mapping software and look at the overall range or, or the overall like upper elevation within a zone, whatever you've picked out in an area in that unit, and then find yourself a trail or find yourself a ridge that looks promising. You know, most of the time I'll pick like a prominent ridge out before I start to pick smaller finger ridges out. And just go put my boots on the ground. Let's walk that ridge. Let's look for elk trails. Let's look for sign. Let's look for scat. And that way, you know, it, it may be a morning you're going to burn a couple thousand feet, um, but you're going to know what elevation those elk are at, or if there are even elk in the area. Um, you know, one thing I'm really concentrate is I walk up this ridge or like depressions in the ridge where elk are going to want to use as kind of their natural, you know, conveyance from south to north or east to west or, or just to get across the ridge. Um, I'm also going to stop by um, specific water features. Like if I can see like a depression or a flat where I expect there may be water or, you know, depending on time of the year, the, I'm, I'm going to swing by those features that elk are going to need to use year round to, to live in there. So depressions, ridges, um, flats, um, you know, changes in vegetation. So right at that timber to, to Alpine, um, change, I'm going to, I'm going to do a lot of investigation at these fringe areas. Um, so based on vegetation changes, terrain changes, I'm going to investigate a little closer there, see where the elk are at. And then, you know, as a hunter put together that information, like, all right, there's more elk sign at 11,000 or 10,000 than there is, let's say at 12,000. So in my mind, these elk are at a little bit lower elevation than they could be. And so you're starting to use all of that. And then from 10,000, you start to, you know, maybe travel laterally, like where are they going um, look, you know, go back to the mapping, like where they go, if they're here, where are they ultimately staying? You know, cause we're not going to get, it's easy with a, I don't want to say it's easy. It's easier during archery season when I can get these dang things to bugle because then, you know, they're, they're kind of giving up their location where during rifle, typically if they're done bugling, 
let's say it's late October, early November, and they're done bugling, like you've now got to just track them down on your feet. You know, you're only using the sign that that's available to you. Um, so yeah, I, I like to I like to travel a ridge that that checks off a bunch of the different elevation boxes. You know, all right, we just covered nine to twelve thousand. There were elk, you know, at the bottom half of that. So let's concentrate there versus let's not waste our time above that where there mm-hmm. weren't, where there wasn't as much elk sign. So um, that's my favorite ways either either to get on a trail or just on a on a random ridge and and walk the thing and, and pick up where the signs at. Yeah, and you know I I learned from one of my hunting mentors a long time ago. I used to always come in with reports from the field about where I found scat, you know, where I was finding sign and he used to make a a point to say, well, think about what that animal was doing and what is that animal in a place where you're going to be able to hunt it when it left that sign. Mostly meaning like, sure, it's great to be in the timber and you can find some beds. There's going to be scat there. There's usually rubs there, but is it, I would say that it's pretty hard to usually get onto an elk that's in the timber unless it's, you know, pretty open timber. But if you find feeding sign and scat out in say a grassy meadow. Well, now you know that the elk was there feeding, right? And that, and like on its feet in a meadow that you could probably see it from a distance away. And all of a sudden that hopefully helps you narrow your, you know, your search a little bit as to like where you should be spending time when it's actually time to hunt. Um, and then on the heels of that too, I think, if I was to walk that ridge that you just mentioned, but didn't find, like didn't actually see the elk by found sign, I would look and try to figure out a way where if you felt confident that the elk are there, try to back off the ridge, whether it's getting on a ridge that faces that ridge or maybe on the same ridge as a high knob that allows you to kind of glass across the hill, but find a way to where you can let the glass do a little bit of work for you and sit back and observe. Because again, like you said, r- rule number one is you got to find them before you can actually even hunt them, let alone kill them, right? And so I think people want to be boots on the ground, rifle on their shoulder, like in kill mode. And like, if I see one, I can kill it. But you just, you can't see as much, right? You can't take yep. in as much intel as if you just take a day. And this is why a lot of times we'll go a day or two early. So you don't even have the pressure of like being able to hunt. You can just sit back and look, let your binoculars do the work. And by golly, if you find a smaller herd or one bull or whatever it is you're looking for, um, a day before season, well, your opening morning has a real bright outlook. For sure. Yeah. That was, that was going to be like my, my second, um, my second point was the back way off. Um, because looking at it across the Canyon, um, you know, whether you're tucked in a dark patch of timber, you know, regardless of mapping software, it never feels the same, but if you can back off and look at it from a distance, you get a really good idea how it lays out. You get a really good idea, like where these elk may be feeding. Um, and you know, I did that. We're talking about late season, but you know, my Idaho elk hunt this year, we, we burnt what we call burn tonight, but it was, you know, with intention of, of figuring out where all these elk were at. And then we went in the next morning and, and killed my bull. But yeah, I, I think burning a night, burning a day, whatever you want to call it. I don't, it's not really burning it because it's actually, you know, helping you become successful. But like getting eyes on the ground, figuring out what the, where the elk actually want to feed versus where you think they're bedding is sometimes easier than, um, you know, hiking up that ridge and, and figuring out that other information for sure. Awesome. Okay. There's some tips on finding them. What's your tip number two? for just for a general DIY elk hunter. So, you know, finding them now, now creating a plan to ultimately kill the bull is, you know, bull or cow or whatever you're, you're after your tags good for it is always tip number two. And so you found elk, you've, um, you know, whether we've glassed them, whether we've, you know, found sign on the ground is now figuring out like where you're going to be able to, to take that animal. Um, so one thing I like to do is look at, you know, if, if I don't know where they're feeding or I've ran into them in the timber or whatnot, it's, it's look at areas around there where these elk doing their feeding. You know, a lot of times you can, uh, you know, if there's a bunch of, you know, green understory or brush, there's a lot of times in the timber, especially in late season, I'm like, wow, these elk can literally live in this timber year round. They don't have to come out to what we consider food or out in the opening. And that changes your plan a little bit versus, you know, if you spot them from across the canyon feeding in a meadow or out and you're like, all right, these elk are still coming out to, to open, um, to feed. And, uh, so then I'm trying to put together my plan, you know, and that, that 
comes down to a lot of you know personal preference. If I'm comfortable shooting to let's say just a random 500 yards, like I'm comfortable shooting out, like I can now start to look at where am I going to go set up? Where am I going to go? You know, am I going to wait for these things to come to feed or, you know, I've got a little bit of a different background growing up where we, we still hunted for 95% of our elk. Like I'm very, very comfortable inside the timber as long as you can see, or as long as, um, you have shooting lanes. Like I'm, I'm completely fine getting on a fresh set of elk tracks and, and following them out or running them out. Um, but I would say for the majority of people is trying to get to a spot where you can let your optics, where you can kind of wait on an elk, kind of that ambush style, um, is going to be people's best bets. You know, they're going to be fairly cyclical until they get bumped. So if you see elk, you know, maybe a couple miles away and you can't get there until the evening or the morning, um, but you did see elk feeding out there, like get yourself into a position where, you know, the wind is correct and you're not going to spook them um, prior to them coming out. And then it's kind of a, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's how we would hunt mule deer, but it's kind of, you know, you, you're kind of sitting on an area, you're sitting on an opening waiting for those elk to reverse what you saw them do earlier in the day or the night before and, and to be out there. You know, one of my favorite ways is if I can spot elk uh, late at night, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable or, or confident that those elk are going to be in the same spot in the morning or, or you know, within close proximity. And so we'll, we'll kind of spot and then go back and ambush at a later time, um, you know, and try to figure that out. 100% agree. There's like, there's no, there's no better feeling than slipping into a small meadow at three or 4 PM, knowing that there were elk there in the morning because they're probably not bedded too far away. And there's a good chance that before shooting light is over, they're going to pop back out in that same meadow. The only thing I would say to, especially to a new hunter, and this really should go for all hunters, but man, the wind like especially the tighter the quarters are, the smaller the meadow. But if you think those elk are out there, but the wind is wrong, don't either circle around to get the wind right or wait. In Colorado, this happens a lot because you have just the the topographical relief that causes thermals, you know, mountains that when that air cools, it sinks down the sides of mountains. It sinks down uh, drainages. It sinks, you know, follows little streams. Oftentimes I would know there would be, you would even hear an elk bugle in a meadow that you knew was somewhere, but the wind wouldn't be right. So you would wait, 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 wait. The client would be getting angry because he's like, let's go. And I'm like, we can't go. The wind's not right. But once you feel that thermal and the thermal stays steady, then you can pretty much waltz right in there and uh, get yourself an opportunity. So um, yeah, my tip would be just please, you know, play caution to the wind always because it is yep. so, so important. All right, let's yep. move on to calls. You're, you call elk a lot. Normally you're, you probably spend 90 some percent of the time when you're calling elk that's in September or early October. But I believe there is a place for elk calls in October and November. What are you going to carry for an elk call and how are you going to use it? So that's a, that's a loaded question because if it's early enough in October, say mid October, <laughs> mid October, depending on the area, um, I may still throw in like, you know, my smaller beagle tube just so it's easily, you know, I'm not, I don't plan on using it a ton, but if the elk in the area are willing mm-hmm. to answer or respond, I'm at least going to give it a try. So I would say we're still kind of on the tail end of the rut. We still may get an answer. Um, I may still elect to, you know, bugle and maybe even try to call elk out of timber patches or whatnot. You know, I, I always have a tough time remembering I no longer have a bow in my hand and it's now a gun, so I don't have to do quite as much work. You know, I just got to pull them out of a timber patch or, or whatnot, but early enough in October, if the rut, you know, uh, dictates it and the elk, um, or, or acting a little bit ready still, um, by all means, I would still bugle. Um, but then as you start to get to what I would consider your later rifle seasons, you know, end of October, um, start to get into early November. Yes. I, you know, everybody there, there's no, you know, cutoff date, like, all right, you can't bugle after this, but I would say generally speaking, they start to tail off, right. They're not, they're not bugling as much. And so at that time of year, I, I do believe calls, um, can still be useful, but I use them very, very sparingly at the point where, I'm now hunting them once again, like I would consider mule deer. Like I'm, I'm using my glass 95% of the time. Um, I'm not trying to call them into my location. I then switched to using my elk calls for if I'm, let's say I'm still hunting or walking down a trail and I kind of bump into a herd of elk. 
I'll let out some cow calls just to kind of calm the herd. You know, even if they seen me, some of the, it, it calms some of the elk that may not have seen me. It may give me just a slight enough chance to, to slow them down or to at least get a better look at the, the herd. Um, there are times if there are very vocal elk out in the woods during rifle, um, I'll kind of join in at times. Um, you know, you can sometimes pull these, these cows, you know, cows or bulls out of the, out of the timber, whatever, wherever you may be communicating with. But I will caution, um, I, I don't like to use calls a ton in, in rifle season. And my concern is I don't want them, if they are around, to look at me, number one. I don't want any extra eyes on me. And I don't want to put them kind of on alert. You know, I, even if it is a natural sound and it's an elk sound, like if they hear something out of the blue, you know, cow calling or, or making any sort of elk noises, it, they instinctively kind of look. And I almost feel... They kind of know what elk are in the area and, you know, some random cow call comes out from left field. It just kind of puts them on alert where I would almost rather be, you know, non-existent to them, especially during rifle season until I need to be. So as much as it, it hurts to say, um, as much as I do call, you don't need to call in the rifle season. It, I think it is a better tactic um, at times not to not to run calls, um, you know, too late into the year. In my personal experience, I, I definitely always, at minimum, have a diaphragm tucked in like every single one of my pockets, bino pouches, just so I'm never without one. But I actually prefer like a louder external uh, read type call for rifle season. But I don't usually use it as as we mostly do to, like you said, to call an elk to your location or even to get a response. But where I've had them really come in handy is to stop an animal or make an animal hesitate where maybe you bumped them. Maybe they're just, it's first light and it's already three or four days into rifle season and they got it in their heads that at first light, they're going to be heading into the timber and you need three seconds, five seconds, whatever it might be to get a shot off. And you can let out a few loud cow calls on, um, you know, an external read and, you know, an older animal might be like, yep, no thanks and keep going. But I, you know, I think with the average five point that probably gets like killed in the state of Colorado and probably here in Montana too, that he might, he's probably only two and a half years old. Like that loud cow call at first light is going to make him stop, look, think, and hopefully, you know, it gives you your shot opportunity. For sure. That's a great point. And, you know, the other way we use them, um, especially, you know, say three, four, 500 yards across the Canyon, maybe it's brushy and you've got, you know, select shot windows. Um, we'll cow call on those at, you know, a second or two ahead of where we think they're going to stop in an opening to try to get the shooter, um, hopefully a clean shot because, you know, we've all been there, I think where you're like, Oh, there's not a whole lot of shot opportunity here, you know, and they, they show and then they disappear. And so you're trying to use, you know, cause you really can't yell at them. I mean, you could, but I feel like a cow call is your safer bet, you know, but you're just trying to get that thing to hold up, you know, in that spot for, you know, three, five, 10 seconds, whatever you need to. So somebody can get a shot off is a, is another great way that we use them. Yeah. When we have a gun in our hand. Tell me how you would steer like a, a newer, maybe smaller stature hunter that can't uh, wouldn't be able to handle a, a bigger, more Magnum style caliber that they might be afraid of the recoil, you know, the punishment that comes with it. Even though I know that a lot of rifles these days come with brakes standard. And uh, now every, you know, a lot of people are getting uh, suppressors, which helps a lot. But even then, you know, a, a 300 Magnum, even with a, a break or a suppressor, it's a lot of bang. It's a, and it's a lot of recoil. So where, where's, where do you point people towards that like need a little less so they can handle it and shoot it accurately, but uh, still need enough gun to kill an elk? Yeah. So if I, if I was going to start and, you know, low recoil, the nice thing is with all of these, um, you know, bonded bullets coming out and in these different options with the quality bullets, um, you know, I'd be completely comfortable with a six and a half, uh, you know, PRC, um, up to like a seven mag, um, would, would both, you know, in 270 Winchester, um, you know, all of those, uh, you know, rounds would be very, very effective. Uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, able to shoot that, uh, terminal ascent a little bit lately. Um, you know, that bonded bullet. And, and I think that bullet in any of those three calibers or anything in between, I would even be comfortable in like a seven mm eight as long as you have a good quality bullet, you know, you can, as I mentioned earlier, we, you can kind of keep going in the lower calibers as long as one, which is you know easy to say you're hitting them in the right spot. And then number two, you've got the correct bullet construction 
um, for, for your range, your bullet speed and all of that. So I would be completely comfortable, you know, I wouldn't want to drop down much below like the six and a half, you know, even a Creedmoor would work. Um, you know, PRC gives you a little more umph, and then, um, you know, seven MMO eight, seven mag is, is probably the upper end for somebody that, you know, seven mag still has pretty, pretty decent recoil, but it's, it's definitely manageable until you get into those larger, heavier for caliber bolts, you know, up into 300 is starting, it's going to start, you know, punishing people a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a lot of things to think about, not, necessarily you know just the the cartridge itself um but uh and not even just the bullet itself i mean obviously you've you've touched on that and i think that's the great thing about these days compared to probably when you and i both started hunting is that even there were better bullets coming out 20 25 years ago I don't think it was talked about quite as much and it just wasn't like it wasn't as readily available information about what these better bullets, how they were performing better on animals and enough people hadn't just had, you know, personal experiences, say taking a, you know, an all copper bullet in a smaller caliber and seeing out how it could perform on an elk. Um, So today's bullet technology definitely allows us, I think, to shoot, you know, a little bit lesser gun, but also, I think it's important to to think about is you can get away with lesser gun as long as you're okay with lesser distance, because a lot of these cartridges have the power to take down an elk out to like 250 yards, maybe even 300. But if you take that same, let's just say it was like a 6.555, right? It's, it's another 6.5 gun, a little bit slower than the 6.5 Creedmoor. At 250 yards, it'll kill an elk all day. I've killed three giant Montana cows with my 6555. But at 350 yards, that bullet's probably moving too slow. You knock, we're not going to get the expansion. It's not going to have the energy when it hits the animal. And it's it's foolish for me to expect that gun to do that at that range. So I think there's there's it really opens up your possibilities if you can just say, okay, I don't need to shoot 400 yards. I'll, I'll get within 250. Yep. No, I, I'm in complete agreement. Yeah, just you know, you know, it, I, there's so much good information out there. You know, you know your 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 gun speed, your your bullets, um, you know, performance, all that stuff kind of adds in to just know your distance, know what your your you know loads capable of, and then stick to it. Right. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back with ammo expert from Federal, Mike Holm. It's a legacy 100 years in the making, where American ingenuity met a trailblazing spirit. Hard work united with patriotism. Technology blended with new ideas. Right here in Anoka, Minnesota. Born in 1922, made in America, proud to be the best. A century of innovation, and we're just getting warmed up. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and our technology segment, Tech Talk. All right, joining us now is uh, Mike Holm. Mike, can you give me just a, like a, a brief intro uh, about what you do there at Federal and then what makes you especially suited to uh, help us answer some of these best elk caliber questions? Sure. So I'm the uh, product director for Centerfire Rifle Ammunition and uh, been with the company for about 16 years now. Uh, Most of that in product development or product management. So I've worked with the engineering teams hand in hand pretty much my whole career um, being at Federal. And uh, I've got got to see a lot of uh, high speed video uh, into, you know, ballistics gel into fresh cow femurs through hide, um, work a lot with the uh, law enforcement teams to understand, um, you know, FBI protocols and terminal performance and and uh, a lot of those things. So I've got a chance to really, um, you know, see some pretty cool behind the scenes stuff as well as, you know, just uh, talk to some of the best people in the, uh, you know, in the industry as far as uh, performance characteristics of cartridges as well as bullets themselves. All right. Well, then let me cut to the chase. What's like the coolest, most exciting sort of product I get, and, and within the bullet realm that you've gotten to be a part of and, and you've gotten to see 
you know, through the making of it and, and see it come to market? Like, w- what's one thing that's come out of federal where you can sort of say, yeah, I had a, a big part in that and, and I'm proud of it? You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is something we've done in the last couple of years, and that's our terminal ascent hunting bullet. Um, it is, I, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but it is the single best hunting bullet on the market um, as far as performance goes at all ranges, really. Um, there's a lot of features that have been put into this this bullet that, um, you know, like our slipstream tip is, uh, that's a, a new design on tip technology that's, you know, um, new to the market. It's, it's, it's a differentiator for sure. Well, go, go ahead and expand on that. What makes that different than just say the average ballistic tip out there? Yeah. So all the, all the tips that are out there, you know, have a solid post that um, is inserted into the bullet and it's kind of crimped on that that holds, that's what, what holds that together. Uh, the, the slipstream tip, the engineers actually hollowed that channel out. And so what that does is it gives you a tip that'll break off at low velocity. So as your bullet, as you're shooting longer ranges and your bullet slows down, if you've got a really robust tip in there, um, you know, a lot of times it'll either the bullet will just go in and tumble or the you'll see a little bit of mushroom in that, that post or that tip will just kind of set back into the bullet. The uh, slipstream tip bullet breaks off and then what initiates the expansion is the fluid material of the animal. Um, that hydrostatic fluid material, it, it opens up the, uh, the upset and that's how we get low velocity um, upsets or at least one of the factors that along with having you know, kind of pre-programmed skiving on the nose. So it knows, that bullet knows every time how to open up um, exactly how we want it. Well, I didn't even know that about that tip, but if you watch the video that Garrett Long and I recently made shooting uh, some bullets into some ballistics gel as well into some gel uh, that had deer scapulas in it, you can see that on the uh, Meat Eater YouTube channel, the terminal scent, by far performed the best at all of the ranges and uh, like really consistent mushrooming. Um, You know, we did 500, 300, and I think uh, we were at like 150 ish. Um, But pretty impressive that that it was able to maintain, you know, the same thing you see at 150 and out to 500. And and that's the cool thing about that bullet, because a lot of times if you're designing a bullet for long range, you got to make some concessions at short range. And if you're making a bullet that's more geared towards a shorter range situation, you know, you're conceding some some performance at, at long range. And so with with the terminal ascent bullet, the way the, the tip design is, as well as the robust bonding of the of the um, the lead to the to the jacket and oh, uh, let me interrupt you. It, let, let me interrupt you. It's like you read our minds because Jason's one question was I wanna know how a how a bonded bullet, how the bonding of the bonded bullet happens. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we'll, we'll take and, um, uh, you know, the, there, there'll be like a, a cylinder of, of lead that gets wedged into the uh, jacket of the bullet. In this case, the terminal scent jacket's quite different than a lot of other jackets because it has a solid copper shank. So they'll kind of impact form this jacket, um, that has a solid copper shank will drop the lead in there. And then there's um, some kind of flux material that gets insert in on top of the lead and it goes down around the, the copper jacket in the lead and it fuses that lead together uh, with the jacket. And that's why we get that, that robust high weight retention because those, those two pieces really become um, you know, bonded together very robustly not all bonding is is the same either. You can get different bullets with, um, you know, that are bonded that don't have that as much robustness, even as as what you'll see in the terminal ascent uh, thing. I think our bonding process is is one of the differentiators um, with the bullets that we make here um, at Federal. I mean, I think we're really really good at it. Um, a lot of a lot of law enforcement agencies um, have very rigorous testing criteria. And um, our bonding uh, process holds up to that very well. So uh, we're proud of what we do with our bonding. 
Okay, just to back up a little bit, flux material might mean something to Jason Phelps, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent like like understanding ex- exactly because I thought it was just like there's a jacket and there's lead, but you introduced another material that actually makes the two come together. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a liquid. That's kind of I guess you could kind of think of it like as a soldering type um, material that goes in there, and it's it's a liquid in liquid form, and it and it just kind of fuses and, and uh, um, you know, bonds those two um, pieces together, the jacket and the core. Okay. Jason, was that an acceptable answer for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. You, you don't have any nerdy follow-ups? No, I, I probably still wouldn't understand exactly how it's all done, but that's, <laughs> that's, that was a good enough explanation that I, I, I got the gist of it. All right, well, Mike, as you hopefully know, because I'm sure Brian gave you like a good uh, heads up summary of what we're going to talk about today on the Federal Podcast, but we're talking elk, and then we got into talking about elk uh, calibers, and Jason has killed elk from 243 all the way up to 338 magnum type cartridges and everything in between. So he didn't really have like a defining, you know, one best overall. But uh, so I'm going to make you walk that plank and, and put yourself out there to the world and, and go ahead and pick and tell me what you think is the best elk cartridge out there. And then tell me what bullet you would put in that elk cartridge. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I am, uh, I'm a 300 wind mag guy all, all around. Um, it's, it's probably my favorite hunting cartridge. Uh, it gives you enough energy. You can reach out. Um, you can you can get heavy bullets. I like heavy for caliber bullets, especially when I'm you know hunting elk or you know moose or you get into African plains game and stuff like that. Um, so I, I naturally kind of default to that. The 300 short mag also you know performance is almost identical. So I mean those those 30 cal uh, magnums are are kind of where my, where I go. When you say heavy uh, for caliber, would you, would that mean like a two hundred or even like a two twenty for those? Yeah, I two hundred is is a nice is a is a nice uh, bullet, especially for the the three hundred mag. You get some pretty high BC bullets. Um, you know, again, we talked a lot about terminal ascent, and but you know, we've got a two hundred grain terminal ascent that's uh, I think over close to six ten and ballistic coefficient and uh, just just an awesome all around hunting bullet that you know, is going to open up if you're, even if you're hunting uh, mule deer or deer or something like that, you'll still get great expansion. But, you know, when you're talking elk and you're talking heavy game with, you know, heavy uh, hide and thick bone and all that sort of stuff, um, I want to have a good, tough, robust uh, premium bullet because you never always know exactly, you know, what kind of um, situation you're going to get yourself into when you're hunting. That's true. That's true. Okay. Let's say you uh, like si- like suppressors and brakes aside, 300 wind can be a lot of gun for people that are maybe a little smaller stature, a little bit younger. Do you have like a lower end recommendation that, that still gets the job done, but, but someone that's a little bit smaller can handle it? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's been like you say, there's been elk that have been killed with two forty three. Um, you know, a lot of young people are into seven oh eight. It's a great caliber. It gets you a little bigger diameter bullet. Ot um, six, you, you know, you can argue is you know still probably one of the most um, versatile cartridges that there there is on the marketplace. You know, if like. If I'm looking at my kids right now, I'd be saying, "Look, can can we get you into something like an OT six, um, hmm. so that I can I can still get you a, a 180 grain bullet, um, and uh, you know we won't have the range and all that sort of stuff, but that's okay because you you know your skill level and things is probably not there anyways, right? Copy that. Uh Jason, I got one follow-up question for both of you, but do you have anything for Mike before we uh before I fi- finish it up here? Yeah. Um no, I think I'm good. I, I I think we're on the same page. You know, we've we've talked a lot about, you know, bullet construction that we talked specifically about the terminal ascent, which I'm 
super stoked with in the seven mag, um, you know, bullet construction is always been, you know, number one, which takes the skills is hit them where you're aiming. And then number two, you know, re- repeatability and consistency out of that bullet. And that's why I've always been a huge fan of those, um, you know, uh, those bonded, um, lead and copper, you know, and copper systems. So, um, you know, I've, I've used them in the past, um, starting to, you know, get, get my seven mag geared up around this, uh, new terminal ascent. So I'm, um, no, I'm, I'm on board with them. I think seven mag in terminal ascent is a fantastic combination. I have one myself and, and I've taken, uh, some, some deer with it, um, mule deer and white tail as well. And it is just fantastic. I love the seven mag too. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great cartridge. And, I'm- uh, the only thing I like better about the the 300 is that I get to use a 200 grain bullet. I just like heavy bullets, you know. Uh, yep. But uh, the seven mag's a great cartridge. I'm right there with you. You know, heavy heavy for caliber bullets. Um, I'm really impressed. You know, I I don't you know label myself as a long range guy, but definitely dabbed with it a lot and used a lot of the you know quote unquote long range cup and core bullets. And, you know, to look at the terminal ascent and see that it's got a higher ballistic, you know, coefficient than say like the 168 burgers and stuff that you guys also load is, is a really intriguing. And I'm excited to, to, you know, put some of that 155, seven mag round through its paces and, and, uh, get it dialed in for, you know, what used to be my brush gun, but now we'll have the ability to, you know, buck the wind a little bit better and, and actually become a, a, a viable long range bullet as well. You're the yeah, only guy I've sure. ever heard that's referred to a seven mag as a brush gun. <laughs> <laughs> Growing <laughs> the coastal jungle here, it's a, you know, I, like I said, back in the day, it was load your seven mag, I think with the 175 partitions and we were all on our way. That was, that was the standard back uh, growing up, you know, a few 270 Winchesters in the mix, but um, just the way we grew up here. Well, you'll both find you know, it. Couple- you'll both find it funny to hear that. I've never, I've never even shot, carried a seven mag in the woods. We actually, in the hunting camp that I cut my teeth on, um, hunting elk and guiding elk, for whatever reason, just the the combined experience within the camp did not like seven mags. People felt like they pencil hold through elk and whatever. I believed it, not ever even having personal experience for a lot, a lot of time until I finally just, you know got enough experience and knowledge and read enough to know that, Hey, the seven mags like well, easily capable of killing any elk on the planet. Anyways, I just got one this year and I have the terminal sent a couple, three boxes ready to go. I just need to put a scope on it and I'm, de- I'm going to be hunting not elk, but I'll be hunting uh mule deer later uh, with that round. So I'm glad to hear you guys both like it. All right. Last question. This goes to both of you guys. This is good. If you're listening, if you're going elk hunting, I want to hear what both these guys have to say about this. You guys know what what caliber, what gun they're going to shoot at the elk. I want to know from you guys, broadside elk, 200 yards, nothing, no no rush in the world. Are you going to shoot that elk behind the shoulder or are you going to shoot him in the shoulder? Meaning like, are you going to try to like go for some bone and some meat in the shoulder or are you going to aim just off the shoulder and just go through ribs and lungs? Who wants to take it first? I'll let Mike go first. <laughs> I'll tell you, I uh, I grew up an archer, and so everything you know, shooting white-tailed deer, and everything was behind the shoulder, going for the vitals, um, you know, that way. Um, but as I've um, hunted more game and had different experiences, especially over in Africa. Um, I've kind of switched my thinking a little bit to, you know, shoulder, um, to, um, maybe, you know, give myself a little bit of margin for error there. You know, if I can get the shoulder, I can, um, you know, I'm, I'm right there with, with the vitals, but then I also get, you know, some, some shoulder and some, some, uh, effectiveness that way. Um. And I tell you, to be honest with you, I have sometimes had a tendency too where I will pull a little bit. And if you get behind the shoulder and you pull a little bit and you end up too far back, then you got problems. So um, 
I've kind of switched a little bit. I'm kind of moving myself to the shoulder. Yeah. So ideal world, like, you know, 200 yards, I'm fairly confident I'm going to hit where I'm aiming. You know, there's not a lot of unknown wind. Um, I'd like to say I would just go behind the shoulder to maximize, you know, meat retention and um, do less damage. But I've got it program, you know, programmed so much into my brain to aim, you know, that high shoulder um, for some of the same reasons Mike said, if you, if you miss high, um, you're going to miss, you hit, you know, depending on which way the elk stand in left or right, you're going to hit them in the neck. You miss left or right the opposite way. You're going to still hit them in the back. You miss low. You're still going to be in vitals. Um, you know, th- there's not a lot of, you know, th- there's good reasons to hit them there, but at 200 yards, like if there's a bull stand at 200 yards, I'm probably going to go behind the shoulder just because I'm very confident I'm going to hit it where it is and I don't have to waste that meat. But I guess there's all kinds of asterisks, right? I also do not like (laughs) tracking. If we're in, you know, if it's a timbered shot or like I've got one little timbered hole and I'm not going to get a follow-up shot and I know I'm not going to get a follow-up shot, I may drift right back to that high shoulder just because I do not want to track that thing. I don't want to risk getting away. Um, So high shoulder is going to, you know, anchor him where he stands Mm -hmm. most of the time. So It's interesting that that you're really uh, focused on high shoulder versus... Because I'll even, I'll go dead center mass, but move my, a lot of times I would just tell people, you know, align that as long as the elk is perfectly broadside, align that your vertical crosshair right on that front leg. And that should put you, you know, you know, right on the, about as close as you can be. Because everybody forgets that the shoulder actually kind of from the leg goes forward and then the scapula kind of comes back. So if you go straight from the leg, there's a good chance if you hit center mass, you're going to be below the sky for letting you actually won't hit any meat. But yep. when you're aiming, it's so it's as if though you're, you know, putting it on the shoulder. Um, but I feel like, yeah, the high shoulder shot that takes a, even a little bit more experience um, to, you know, like you said, you better be sure you know exactly where you're hitting because you could miss high and um, you know, whatever, all, all, you know, like you said, lots of asterisks, I, but um, yeah. Go ahead. No, you know, some of the reason, and I don't know if my terminology is right, and, and I'm just using the terminology, it, you get some of that spinal shock or that, that shock in that yes. high shoulder. And so you get that instantaneous, you know, no more use of, of the leg. It, it just, it kind of guarantees that anchoring. You know, we all know if you drop down five, six inches, we're still going to have a dead elk. I just, I like the idea of that high shoulder, that animal having to absorb all that energy. And then a lot of times it's got that, I don't know what it's called. I don't necessarily have the right terminology, but it kind of shocks that spine into being unusable. And then that's where we get that instant drop um, from that. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Go ahead, Mike. It's really cool. Like if you get a chance to look at any sort of high speed video on some of these, you know, bullet performance, and I think you guys probably have, you know, you see that, that you get this, really rapid energy release and, and you know that's kind of some some of what jason's talking about and then you get this massive just energy release and then you get your penetration of your bullet and that that whole shock effect there is um can, is pretty um pretty devastating yes and i think people should know that just because you shoot the shoulder you're by no means not hitting vitals like you're a hundred percent going to be in the front edge of the lungs and into all those, the big, you know, arteries and veins that connect the lungs to the heart. And then everything that connects to the spine there, like that shoulder zone is, is all kinds of vitals. Um, I think that in the past, at least in my experience, people wanted to shoot behind the shoulder because they felt like they, they maybe couldn't get through the shoulder. And so, I mean, at least that's how I was brought up was, you know, just to shoot behind the shoulder, but just understanding the vitals better. Um, I'm definitely a, a shoulder guy. Well, thank you guys both for uh, joining me on my uh, first ever uh, guest hosting of the uh, federal podcast. And if I do a good enough job, maybe Brian will let me come back and do it again. But I appreciate you guys taking the time. Uh, Jason, good luck next week on your elk hunt. And Mike, good luck on your in uh, on your hunts this fall too. All right. Thanks, guys. Great talking with you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jonas. Yep. See you, Mike. Good boy. It's a season with no beginning or end. With bonds so strong, 
not weather or age. Thousands of miles keep us from it. Our love for it is as varied as those who are addicted to its pursuit. A connection with the outdoors. With family and your best friend. We plan with anticipation. We prepare and wait in silence. With tired legs and cold hands, we push on. All in hopes of hearing a call that shatters the calm. To see the approach of thundering skies and experience the instantaneous rush. For whatever your reason, this is our season.